Welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, Selling Pele. In some respects, soccer is about timing. When to shoot, when to make a challenge, and when to go for the killer pass. The 1970 World Cup provided some exquisite examples of this, and Pele was at the center of many of them. The famous save by Gordon Banks from Pele's header in the group match against England, the deft touch to round the keeper and score against Uruguay, and the languid pass to Carlos Alberto so he could score his memorable goal against Italy in the final. It's moments like these that lead many people to call soccer the beautiful game. Not everything related to the sport, however, has the timing of Pele and Brazil's 1970 World Cup squad. And this is a story about bad timing. Probably due to his performance in the Cup, where he was named the player of the tournament, a sports management group founded by Mark McCormick, which is now called IMG, wanted to sign Pele as a, as a client. The process, however, was far from smooth. They spent two years in pursuit of the Brazilian and Santos star before he finally signed on the dotted line in September of 1972. For the next few years, they attempted to procure different kinds of endorsement deals, uh, public appearances, and other opportunities, and they were repeatedly thwarted. And it seems that none of these actually ever came to pass, or no major deals uh, were ever signed. I think that this failure occurred for three main reasons. The first, a lack of interest from Pelé and his people. Two, existing contracts that Pelé had already signed. And three, the underdevelopment of a soccer marketplace in the United States. Ultimately, this relationship between IMG and Pele was ultimately unsuccessful, financially speaking, but I think that the instincts of the firm and McCormick were sound, and really what was wrong was the timing was off. Many of the ideas, proposals, and projects that were originally suggested or that were floated at one time or another by IMG agents and uh, marketers uh, would later be taken up and carried out much more successfully when Pele eventually signed with the New York Cosmos and perhaps more importantly with Warner Communications. The efforts by IMG to sign Pele began immediately after the World Cup in July of 1970, and it's unclear what motivated the interest. It could have been, as I mentioned, Pele's World Cup performance, which was outstanding. It could be that this was the first World Cup to be broadcast in color, and so everything maybe seemed a bit more exciting. It could also be due to IMG's own efforts at internationalization. The the company's headquarters was in Cleveland, Ohio, but they had serious offices in England, and they were in the process of opening another one in Japan. And of course, they had contacts and, and products all over the world, or clients, I should say, all over the world. The agency had formed in 1960, and for many years, its most famous client was the American golfer Arnold Palmer. He was probably the biggest name and, and for a long time the most important client. However, they had a diverse 
list or roster of clients from different sports and from all around the world. So, for instance, other important clients included Gary Player, who was also a golfer from South Africa, uh, Jackie Stewart, who was the race car driver from Scotland, Rod Laver, an Australian tennis player, and Jean-Claude Keeley, who was a famous French uh, alpine skier. Initially, the efforts were made to, or the IMG once Pele signed, focused a lot of their efforts on international uh, corporations or, for instance, uh, signing a contract to sell something in the UK and Europe, for instance. And one uh, probable reason for this is that the impetus or the push to sign or the suggestion that IMG pursue Pele as a client may have originally come from their office in London. They, as I said, they wanted to focus their efforts mainly on markets outside of the U.S., but as we'll see in just a few minutes, they pursued uh, product opportunities within the United States. And I'd say in general, they believed that Pele was being under-marketed. They referred to him in one of the letters that they sent to him uh, trying to convince him to sign, that he was the world's greatest or most recognizable athlete, and they were the most uh, the greatest international uh, sports marketing firm, and so this was a natural uh, match. The first hurdle they faced, uh, if you remember, this is an era before you could Google someone or send them an email or a text or or call them on a satellite or cell phone, was how do we get in touch with Pele? How do we get in touch with? Who do we talk to? So they proceeded to tap all sorts of personal and professional contacts, uh, and they wrote letters to people like Joao de, de Havalanche, who was the uh, later who was head of FIFA, uh, but at that time was the head of the Brazilian uh, Football Association. They uh, attempted to go through Robert Falkenberg, who had been an American tennis player, but was perhaps best known in Brazil as the founder and owner of Bob's Burger which was the largest and I think still is the largest fast food chain in in the country. They even, uh, they they tried to go through Brazilian journalists. They sent one guy a professional grade tennis racket in uh, appreciation, but they were not having much luck. In fact, they spent a great deal of time talking with and exchanging letters and notes with a Brazilian banker who claimed that he could represent or could deliver Pele to them. Uh, but it turned out that he, in fact, did not represent uh, the soccer player whatsoever. By 1971, they had managed to come up with some uh, or arrange some meetings, and there were meetings between representatives of IMG and Pele's people in places like Los Angeles, in Paris, and in New York. But again, little seemed to be accomplished. There was even a chance meeting in the Montreal airport. McCormick was going one way, uh, was going someplace, and he happened to see a bunch of guys standing around wearing athlete, uh, with athletic bags that said Santos, which is the name of Pele's uh, club. And he said, Pele, and they pointed down the the jetway, and McCormick went up and introduced himself, and they had a brief chat. But again, things were kind of slow, and the, the McCormick and his people were growing increasingly frustrated. What really turned the tide was uh, a, 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 a really kind of wild, and I might say typically kind of 1970s-seeming uh, story. McCormick had known a woman who worked as a flight attendant, or the way he refers to it in an interview was a stewardess. 
Uh, and she had a roommate. And this roommate and a, a Norwegian flight attendant who worked for Pan Am named Eva uh, were headed down to Brazil to compete in an international flight attendant beauty contest that was sponsored by Varig, the uh, Brazilian airline. And McCormick was giving uh, this uh, woman a ride to the airport, or they were in a taxi together on the way to the airport. And McCormick explained the situation that they had been trying to, to sign Pele as a client, but weren't getting much luck. And by the way, if she got a chance, maybe you could get in touch with this uh, filmmaker and photographer, a French-born guy named Jean Monzon, who was uh, supposed to be able to deliver Pele or to put uh, them in touch. So the woman goes down to the uh, to Brazil and calls up Gimonzon, manages to finagle a ticket down uh, paid for by the airline where she meets up with Pele's people. And they initially don't know quite what to make of her uh, or, or these two. Uh, the Monzon meets them. He sends a car to pick them up at the airport. He takes them to his house. He shows them some of his film. Eventually, they, they get to meet Pele, and they go through and negotiate. The, they, she negotiates this contract line by line by line. And every night, she returns to the hotel and handwrites on hotel stationery what went on that day. And she talks about going out to dinner at a fancy French restaurant. She she talks about going out and dancing the samba, and she says that at all times, everybody was a perfect gentleman, but they uh, didn't really know who she was, or they thought perhaps not, um, you know, not, not, it's not crazy of them to, to have thought that she was a representative of McCormick, but in fact, uh, she was a flight attendant who, who was uh, now negotiating this very important uh, contract. Once Pele had signed, uh, the, they immediately began sending out inquiries and letters and putting out feelers to all sorts of different companies. Uh, some you might, uh, we, you know, might be obvious, like uh, Quaker Oats, American Express, uh, Gillette Razors, for instance. Others maybe not so obvious, Firestone Tires, uh, Kaiser Aluminum. Uh, there was a, a heavy equipment operator named Clark Equipment that they approached, and the, the response of the marketing guy was, uh, we, we sell this heavy industrial equipment. I don't think that an endorsement is going to change the buyer's minds. They pitched other ideas like books, uh, clothing, uh, newspaper articles that would be written by Pele and the uh, journalist Paul Gardner about the upcoming 1974 World Cup. Uh, one English newspaper offered uh, three to five thousand pounds for a series focusing on the decline of English football since 1966. That was after England had been eliminated from uh, the 1974 World Cup. One idea that they really felt was going to be very lucrative was the idea of farewell, a series of farewell matches played around the world once uh, Pele had retired from his club Santos. Uh, they felt that this could be uh, enormously, uh, make a lot of money for all concerned. There was some effort made, some approaches and discussions with uh, NASL teams in the United States, like the Baltimore Bays and the short-lived Atlanta Apollos, uh, but these never really worked out. And as I said at the start, I find no evidence that they were uh, that there were any major deals uh, ever signed. 
So what happened? Why was this really a failure? After all, you had this incredibly marketable uh, player, Pele. You had this incredibly experienced and well-connected and powerful uh, sports marketing firm in IMG, on the other hand. Well, the first reason, as I mentioned, was Pele, his situation, and the people surrounding him. Uh, the terms that were negotiated into the contract somewhat limited the options available. So Pele refused to endorse any alcoholic beverages or tobacco products. For a personal appearance, he demanded $10,000 a day, which is about $50,000 a day in today's money. Uh, he, uh, that, that's not including travel, accommodations, and food for himself and, and two other people. And crucially, and in the correspondence, the IMG people seem to uh, really make a lot of this, that uh, Pele would not attend any cocktail parties, receptions, meet and greets, uh, or visits to sponsor facilities. So, for example, if you were opening a new tire factory somewhere and you wanted Pele to come out uh, and be there and cut the ribbon or whatever, that was not going not gonna to work out. Other issues were probably related to his personal life. He had opened a new business office. Uh, he had gone back to school to get a university degree. Uh, his son had been born in 1970 and so was just two years old. And perhaps he just wanted to stay home and rest. After all, he had been uh, traveling around the world and playing matches uh, basically since he was a teenager. And as he says in his uh, autobiography that was published a few years later, I had, I had enough travel to last me several lifetimes. There were other issues, too. It seems like uh, often that the people surrounding Pele were not very experienced uh, or knowledgeable about uh, negotiations or how this process worked. And so constantly McCormick's people would be pitching an idea only to find out that there was all, that this idea had already been pitched or that Pele's people were somehow negotiating uh, uh, on the side or, or in some other capacity. So for instance, uh, they were trying to pitch the idea of a book to a French uh, publisher, and the French publisher said, yeah, we already got this a couple of months ago. Or uh, one uh, story that came to an IMG uh, agent's uh, attention was that a, new, a, a newspaper in New Zealand was advertising a series of articles authored by Pele ab about the upcoming 1974 World Cup. And there was another example where uh, Pele had said he didn't want to play in exhibition matches, and they heard a rumor that he was going to appear at an indoor game in Toronto. So it seems like there was some maybe inexperience on the part of Pele's handlers. Uh, this is maybe n not necessarily unusual uh, when Brazilian broadcasters approached the New York Cosmos later to uh, to do the the uh, radio broadcast of Pele's final game with the Cosmos before his eventual retirement, uh, they were shocked when Warner Warner Brothers Communications uh, demanded that they pay a, a royalty fee. So, the idea of sports marketing may not have been quite as developed in Brazil and among Brazilian uh, players and teams and the industry as it was in the United States. 
The second major problem were the existing contracts that Pele had already signed before he became a client of IMG. So, for instance, he already had a deal for coffee, for televisions in Brazil. He had a, a deal with Pepsi, the soft drink manufacturer, and with Puma. And so the one with Puma really uh, limited the options in the most obvious and perhaps most lucrative uh, uh, items – uh, soccer balls, soccer clothing, soccer shoes, that was already all taken care of uh, under the terms of the Puma contract. Now, when McCormick's people looked over these contracts, they found them to be kind of vague, and there seemed to be the option of other types of clothing that was not related to sport, but ultimately none of that was uh, was pursued. The third and final uh hurdle, I guess we could say, was the undeveloped state of the game in the United States. At various points during this time, the NASL was precariously close to folding and was hardly popular in the, 19, in the early 1970s, uh, certainly not across the country. And there was a mismatch between what they could offer, uh, the NASL teams, and what Pele expected. So, for instance, the Apollos, when they approached uh, Pele about offering a, a, some exhibition matches and maybe some clinics. They were willing to offer $5,500 a day, plus a third of the gate over average, which in 1973 was only about 3,300 people per game. The U.S. men's national team at this time was at one of its lowest ebbs ever uh, and had not qualified for a World Cup since the 1950. Uh, and in general, the marketplace was perhaps not very large. There was some discussion about signing a deal for Pele to endorse soccer balls that would be sold through Sears, uh, and they estimated that this would only be worth about $3,000 a year in royalties. And of course, they couldn't do it anyway because of the limitations associated with the contract he had already signed with Puma. IMG, though, had the right idea, and within a few years, things had changed. Uh, Pele had hired a professional economist to run his business, and so at least from an economic perspective, it was a lot more in professional hands. He had also become embroiled in the collapse of a company called Filax, and this was a company that Pele had a relatively small investment in. He owned only about 6% of the company, but he had uh, signed a contract basically guaranteeing the debts of this company. And so they came into debts when the, when the company failed of about a million dollars. And then this was coupled with some fines that the Brazilian government leveled for improprieties in the importation of raw materials. And so at the end of the day, Pele was on the hook for about $2 million. And so he needed the money more than he had a couple of years earlier in 1972. Many of his existing endorsement contracts were also up for renewal, or they could be negotiated and modified uh, going forward. The other thing that happens is that even though soccer in the United States was undeveloped, and as I mentioned earlier, was perhaps at one of its lowest ebbs, it was... Uh, kind of on the upswing, or at least there were encouraging signs. More and more kids were playing the game, including McCormick's own son, uh, who uh, who ha injured himself once, and McCormick asked if Pele would uh, autograph something for him. Uh, more colleges and universities were adding or, or restoring soccer teams. The 
uh, periodical Soccer America had been founded. And so for the first time, perhaps ever, there was a national soccer magazine or periodical in the United States. And the NASL continued. It survived and it continued to develop by adding uh, teams and attendances began to increase as the years went on. And so even though U.S. soccer was undeveloped, a foundation existed that could be exploited once uh, Pele had signed with the Cosmos. And that's exactly what happened. Books were published, tours and exhibitions were organized around the world, and Pele became a national, he probably already was an international superstar, but he became a national superstar in the United States. Uh, and his uh, goodbye match, uh, which was played in the Meadowlands in uh, in New Jersey, was perhaps one of the biggest sporting events of the decade. And by 1977, Pele had truly become a global marketing phenomenon. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US.